Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of A Good Drop, where each week and every week we take a trip back in time and enjoy a cool cocktail in an illegal speakeasy. Yes, we're going back and going forwards and staying right where we are. It's all about the 20s. Prohibition and dive bars. Anyway, we'll tell you all about it in a second. I'm Stu. I'm Michael. Cheers. Cheers. So yes, as we said, it is now the 20s, has been for a little while, and so we're talking 1920s and the drinks that were popular. Mm. We we took a trip back in time with the Wayback Machine, and we're exploring everything to do with prohibition and popular cocktails of the time. Yeah, because naturally what became popular at the time was cocktails nobody wanted to drink anything straight because none of what was straight was decent Mm. everything was produced in dodgy dodgy ways because they weren't supposed to have it and uh, funnily enough gin or bathtub gin as it became known was the most popular because it was the easiest to make Mm. and uh, didn't require any aging yeah the what prohibition brought in was the uh, it became illegal to manufacture, produce, or, or, and sell alcohol. So of course they can't. If you can't sell it, people can't drink it. At least that was the theory. It didn't work as well as they thought. Yeah, what ended up happening was underground bars known as speakeasies popped up all over the place. The wealthy went to places like Cuba. Or even Chicago and New York. Yeah. Where the prohibition wasn't really enforced very well. It was sort of... They, the, the law enforcement looked the other way, for the most part. There was up to about... It was apparently up to about 100,000 speakeasies at in New York City and about 10,000 in Chicago alone. That's a phenomenal amount of places. Yeah, and huge amounts of stuff that was being produced on the sly and moved through town in specially modified cars with hidden areas for mm. for putting things. We could do a whole episode just on Prohibition, but that's not what this is about. This is about the drinks of the 20s. Well, it's a little bit about Prohibition. It's a little bit about Prohibition. Because but you can't have drinks of the 20s without talking about Prohibition. They're one and the same. Well, that's right. And you certainly don't end up with what was undoubtedly the most popular cocktail of the 1920s, the Gin Ricky, without having had Prohibition. Because the Gin Ricky was literally an answer to, we've got lots of gin because it's easy and fast to make, but it tastes like ass. What do we do about it? Yeah. So they they watered it down with lime juice and soda water. And there you have it. Yeah. And uh, that was actually an evolution of the... Bourbon Ricky, which was the original Ricky. <laughs> original Ricky. Because there are several different kinds of Rickies. There's the Gin Ricky, Bourbon Ricky, and Whiskey Ricky. Rye, rye Ricky? Rye Ricky, rye yeah, Ricky? which is made with rye whiskey. Yeah. Yeah, Bourbon Ricky made with bourbon whiskey, and the Gin Ricky made with gin. But of course, 
bourbon and rye whiskey were difficult to produce, mm. it couldn't be done quickly, and it certainly couldn't be done in your bathtub. Yeah, well, good bourbon couldn't be produced overnight, like gin. Yeah, bourbon and rye whiskey have to be aged. Yeah. They just they need to be to work, but gin, you just need a still hidden in a cupboard somewhere to produce the base spirit, and then you steep all your stuff in in a bathtub for about a week, and you're good to go. Well, th- technically, they didn't use the, the bathtub to steep the stuff. They just stored the jugs in the bathtub because that was the only place they could fit jugs under a faucet. Mm, well, and the majority of tubs, like old-fashioned bathtubs, not the ones actually plugged into plumbing, but the old-fashioned ones, which still very much existed in those days, the old wood ones that you would fill with preheated water, mm. would have definitely been used for, for mixing. Very true. Uh, so the second most popular cocktail is, back in the 20s, it was the French 75, named after the powerful French 75mm field gun. Uh, it's a champagne-based cocktail invented by uh, Harry McElhorn, who mixed gin, champagne, lemon juice, and two dashes of simple syrup for patrons of the New York bar in Paris. Yeah, and its name came from a gun, funnily enough, because of the kick that it had. That's why they named it after the gun. Yeah, because it had a kick. Now, I think by today's standards, it probably doesn't really have a kick. Mm. But certainly two two ounces of gin, that's... Holy shit. Yeah, that's a lot of gin. <laughs> they probably didn't drink this one in America, or didn't drink it much in America, given that it needed champagne. Yeah, which they couldn't have acquired there, but... Another place where, um, was of course, we must remember, America was not the only country that existed during the 1920s. <laughs> the UK also existed, as did Europe. Most of Europe, at least, was, was there in the 20s. And um, quite a few drinks did come out of England and France at mm. the time. So what we're drinking at the moment is uh, the sidecar, which uh, the same man who invented the French 75 did eventually claim credit for creating. But there's a bit of a story to that because... A a mixed story because someone else said they had... Or someone else said they uh, invented it. Well, and in fact, Harry McElhone himself said somebody else had invented it. He Mm. published a book in 1922 called Harry's ABC of Mixing Cocktails. And in that, he included a recipe that is the International Bartenders Association standard recipe now. But in later editions of his book, he changed the recipe from what it was then, from the 50 mil cognac, 20 mil triple sec, and 20 mil lemon juice to equal parts of each and listed himself as the inventor. So, which is the one that's used now? So, the one that's used now is the original. The two parts parts cognac? Yeah, the two parts cognac, one part triple sec, one part lemon lemon juice. juice. Mm. Or, as the International Bartenders Association puts it, 50 cl of (laughs) cognac, 20 cl lemon juice, 20 cl triple sec. Right. That that sounds like a very tasty cocktail. mm, And that is poured into a shaker full of ice and shaken and then strained 
into a cocktail or martini glass. So the ice does not make its way into the drink. It chills it during the shaking. And then one drinks it still cool, garnished with either a wedge of lemon, which makes sense, you've just used lemon, or a wedge of orange for some reason, though there's no orange in it whatsoever. And we've got one of these here today to try and find out what it tastes like. What does it taste like? It's good. It, it is good. It is delicious. It's hard to describe. But what's interesting is that it is one of, it's one of the few popular 1920s drinks that... That is still popular today. That's, well, still popular today and made its way into the International Bartenders Association standard list. Hmm. How about that? I mean, there's a few that that are in there, but not many, and certainly the uh, the gin Ricky is not. Oh, I suppose you can't really mess that up. Yeah, no, there's, there's nothing particularly complicated about the gin Ricky. Hmm. You, yeah, pour two parts gin, one part lime juice, and you know, squeezed out of a lime, and then drop that into the glass and top it up with soda water. <laughs> Amazing in a Collins highball. Yeah, has to be a Collins highball. Yeah, and they they picked that that I guess look because it looked more like a non-alcoholic drink. Yeah. And that was an important thing, that the drinks needed to look non-alcoholic. So if you got busted, if the police came barging in, you could just say, oh, no, we're not serving alcohol, sir. Mm. And unless the cops decided to have a taste, they wouldn't get it because most of the drinks of that time smelt very citric. It could have just been juice. Very true. And this is where, this is really, in the 1920s, is really where the, where cocktails became popular. Sure, cocktails were were around pre-20s, but up until this point, people were drinking whatever. People were drinking everything. And then Prohibition hit, and suddenly there was a lot of crap booze coming out because people, the average person didn't know how to make it. And given that it was all under the table, everything, like there was no quality control. Yeah, so naturally people wouldn't refuse drinking just because it was illegal. Mm. They, they wouldn't stop. You know, making just, something illegal never stopped anybody from doing anything. No, They just had to make do with what they got. Um, which brings me to the next point, which was that also in the 20s, organized crime in the US skyrocketed. Yeah, because naturally if there's something that people want that you can't legally produce... People who don't care about flaunting the law are going to come up and start producing it and distributing it. Mm. And that's exactly what a Mr. Al Capone did. He basically took the black market, the alcohol black market by storm, and at one point owned over 10,000 speakeasies in New York. Yeah, which is absolutely sorry, insanity. Chicago. And it was uh, it was around that time that the it was Chicago. It, it was, was in Chicago. Maybe it was a thousand out of the ten thousand. Sorry, I think it was a thousand. Um, because he was uh, he basically his territory was the south side of Chicago, and that 
and I mentioned this because our next drink on our list is the the Southside Fizz. Well, we're reading off a fantastic article from Ment- Mental Floss uh, that is called The Origins of Ten Popular Prohibition Cocktails. It's a really good list because they give you uh, the instructions on how to make them too. So the uh, Southside Fizz is a obviously cocktail. Uh, it mixes gin, lemon juice, club soda, mint, and simple syrup, making for a light drink that has some making for a light drink with a little punch, or little punch. Uh, it was the preferred beverage of Al Capone and his crew. So the North Side's rival booze runners were bringing in a smoother gin to their speakeasies, which made the gin uh, with a splash of ginger ale divine. But the South Side's gin had a much rougher bite, and so more elements were demanded to make it drinkable. Yeah, so naturally they used two ounces of gin because it had to be strong (laughs) and an ounce of lime juice, three quarter ounce of simple syrup, sugar syrup, whatever you choose to call it and mint leaves. Hmm. Yeah. And none of these cocktails are hard to make. All of these cocktails are fairly easy to make too. Yeah. Which they, they had to be because everybody was basically just coming up with stuff as they went along to make do with what they had access to at the time. Yeah, what can we mix this? What can we mix to this to hide the bad flavor? Yeah, with the exception, of course, of again in the foreign bars like in Cuba, which became an enormously popular place for the rich to go mm. for tastier beverages, and certainly that's where drinks like the mojito came into their own. Mm. And I'm sure, I'm sure Canada and Mexico also had their share of uh, border crossing drunk border crossings. Oh, without a doubt. And the newer version of the sidecar was um, come up with uh, by old mate Henry in France. Mm. So even though that's not where it came from, it came from England and became popular in America because they had lots of gin on hand. And then the new version was invented in France. Yep. So the Bee's Knees was another gin-based cocktail that uh, rather than straight up sugar combined gin with honey lemon juice and orange juice to sweeten the bite out of it honey you're putting honey in a cocktail oh yes they put honey in it that's why it was the bee's knees right and in the 20s anything that was good was the bee's knees Mm. and yeah it smoothed the jagged edges off the illegal hooch yeah well a lot of people turned up their nose at adding honey to a drink because sugar was far more popular at the time. But it worked and it became the bee's knees because it was pretty damn good. Yeah, it uh, ended up being a favorite in speakeasies because it was a really simple way to make gin much more, well, to make bad gin much more palatable. Mm. So the next cocktail in our list is called the Corpse Reviver. Yeah, and it's... uh, its name is what it is for a very specific reason, because it had the motto, cheers to the hair of the dog that bit you, which anyone who has seen the, um, anyone who has seen The Shining would be familiar with that phrase, because it's used by the lead character at one point when he says, cheers to the hair of the dog that bit me, before <laughs> having a drink. But his drink is not a corpse reviver. The corpse reviver, though, 
was cognac, brandy, sweet vermouth. And there was a second, a Corpse Reviver 2, made of gin, lemon juice, triple sec, lillet, and absinthe. And both of these ludicrously strong, kick-you-in-the-teeth-style drinks were meant as hangover cures. In the early days, when they were invented, around the 1860s, they were seen as medicinal, and something that would help you get over a hangover. Hair of the dog. Yeah, hence why they were called the Corpse Reviver, and became popular during Prohibition, because... I'm guessing people got some pretty gnarly hangovers from the stuff they were drinking. Yeah. I can't imagine how bad they would be. Because some of these gins were... Some of these gins, some of these whiskeys were really, really dreadful. Because if, if you remember to our whiskey episode way back at the beginning, we talked about getting the heads and tails off the distillate, the stuff coming out of the distiller. Yeah. Because that's the top stuff is poisonous and the bottom stuff tastes like crap. And they might have got the top stuff off, but I'm willing to bet they didn't worry about the bottom. Mm. I, I would agree with that too. <laughs> it would be so, so rough. Yeah, it would have been absolutely rough as guts. Yeah. And the headaches mm. that you'd have got afterwards, but nobody cared. They were still getting drunk. They were still getting drunk. And yeah, if you were wealthy enough, you were getting drunk on good quality illegal hooch. Yeah. Because people were still producing things like cognac and other brandies, but you had to pay a premium for it because it wasn't nearly as easy to produce as gin was. Mm. And the the regular run-of-the-mill stuff was so bad that at the height of prohibition, 10 people a day were dying from alcohol-related poisoning. Yeah, a wow. Day. Just and, far out. And you compare that to the population in those days, that's actually quite a high percentage. Mm, for sure. For sure. Uh, so next on our list is the Mary Pickford. Yeah, and uh, this is one that does take us out of the US and to locations far and wide because Mary Pickford was, for those of you who don't know, a star of the silent screen who was in a number of films with Charlie Chaplin. And the Mary Pickford was invented for her on a trip to Cuba, where rum was readily available because, you know, Cuba. Mm. It's believed... Like, there's a bit of contention on who was the uh, bartender that served her the first Mary Pickford. It's believed to be either Eddie Wolke, who fled to Cuba during Prohibition, or Fred Kaufman, who may have mixed it for her while she and Fairbanks were on vacation. Yeah, now, Fairbanks was her husband, Douglas mm. Fairbanks, who she yeah travelled with often. I recognise that name, Douglas mm. Fairbanks. But there you go. Probably yeah. something my parents watched. And uh, the Mary Pickford, funnily enough, is another cocktail from the era that made its way into the International Bartenders Association list. Mm. So what what's in that one? It's uh, rum, pineapple juice, and grenadine. Yes, so it was a very fruity concoction. The sort of thing that you'd expect to get in South America, really. Yeah. And um, apparently, 
Mary Pickford was quite the fan of fruity things. Mm. Well, the pineapple juice would definitely cover that aspect. Yeah, though it does end up from the addition of grenadine actually having a pinkish colour. Yeah, I'd believe that. And in fact, I will show my co-host here a picture of a Mary Pickford. Now, I know you can't see this playing at home, but it is a very light pink. Hmm. Like a cosmopolitan kind of colour. Yeah. Uh, So next we have the last word. It's a, a pale green concoction made of equal parts gin, lime juice, green chartreuse, and maraschino liqueur. Uh, initially developed at the Detroit Athletic Club, this colourful cocktail caught on in New York when vaudevillian uh, Frank Fogarty, a.k.a. the Dublin Mistral, Minstrel, uh, brought the recipe f- with him. Its popularity faded following World War II, but the last word was rediscovered by the bartenders of the Pacific Northwest in the mid-2000s. Yeah, and that's uh, it's an interesting sounding one. I mean, once again, they used citrus and fruity things to cover the alcohol smell and cover the bite and the foul taste. Mm. Well, there's a lot of bite in chartreuse if you don't mix that properly. Oh, yeah. And I mean, maraschino liqueur would have balanced it out slightly. And then the addition of the lime juice to add some citric tang. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually impressed that they could get maraschino liqueur and uh, chartreuse in the United States because they couldn't import it. Mm. But well, then it legally. was uh, it was in New York that mm. it uh, gained its popularity, and as you mentioned earlier, New York did quite a good job of finding a way around things they weren't supposed to have. Mm. Very true. And, you know, they were, they were an island. It was easy to get things in by boat. Mm, under the cover of night. Under the cover of night, exactly. Yeah. Especially back in the 1920s, there wouldn't have been as many... It wouldn't have been as easy to spot a boat on the water. Yeah, just uh, you know, a little rowboat or something coming across the river. Mm. Now, the Ward 8 comes up next on our list, and... That is an interesting one, because its name is a nod to its origin, which actually dates back to 1898 in Boston, when politician Martin M. Lomasny celebrated his win of a seat in the General Court of Massachusetts with a newly minted cocktail, named for the district Ward 8, that cinched his victory for him. It's a mix of rye whiskey, lemon juice, orange juice, and grenadine. It's... It rose in popularity during Prohibition because of all the fruit flavors helping to mask the backyard whiskey backyard whiskey bite. Yeah, now undoubtedly it would have been on the slightly more expensive side because whiskey was, as we mentioned earlier, hard to come by because mm. you couldn't just make it in a week. No, I think. Well, what is it? Three years for a bourbon for. A, to be a proper real one, but they weren't worrying about proper real ones. They were just worrying about it being drinkable, but you can't make a drinkable whiskey overnight either. No, it'd still be there for a year or two. Yeah, they'd have had to wait some time. And sure sure enough, Prohibition lasted long enough for them to be able to produce a few. And 
people did, upon hearing that prohibition was coming, stockpile barrel after barrel while they could still get such things legally. Mm. With the the richer end of the rich, the more wealthy end of town, bought entire bottle shops. Yeah, and that way they were able to keep drinking the better stuff. They could afford to pay for it because it was the more expensive speakeasies that had the real stuff mm. that they had just stockpiled. Yeah. And I mean, I would do the same if I knew prohibition was coming. I would stockpile the good stuff. Although that would increase the uh, cost. I would say when the law came in, it would have increased the cost of buying a bottle at the shop's by a significant amount. Oh, quite significantly. But I doubt that they were actually selling it by the bottle at um, at that point. Everything would have been by the glass as soon as Prohibition kicked in. Oh, yeah. But I mean, hmm. when it was announced that, no, this is happening, we're going to... Oh, yeah. The prices would have flown up because bottle shops would have known that they were in a bit of trouble. Yeah. And they wouldn't be able to import or sell anything more after a certain date. So what they had was it. Yeah, and then they had to diversify. Which I guess is part of how... um, One of the things that uh, the good old US of A can probably thank for the ability to buy liquor anywhere. Because everywhere that sold liquor had to start selling something else. Mm. (laughs) Hmm. And then when Prohibition was gone, they just went right back to selling it again. Yeah. But of course, they already had a market for the other things, so they kept selling them. Yeah. Well, and most of them as well. Most of the places that started selling liquor after Prohibition actually opened their doors and began selling at midnight the day Prohibition ended because (laughs) somehow they were able to get their hands on legal alcohol just that quickly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, totally legal alcohol Yeah, because naturally they didn't already have it they, they couldn't possibly have already had it, it was illegal But the police just looked the other way and went Well, today it's legal and we can't really get up you for selling it It's legal now mm. Absolutely uh, Now, our last cocktail on our list is the Hanky Panky Made from equal parts gin and sweet vermouth With two dashes of fernet Fernet Branca. Fernet Branca being uh, basically bitters. Yeah, just a clear-coloured bitter beverage that mm. you mix in. Yeah. So this, this cocktail was created by a lady called Ada Coleman, a well-regarded bartender at the Hotel Savoy in London. And upon her reti- when she retired in 1925, the Daily Express wrote this about the booze-slinging broad. The uh, Coley is no Coley is known to thousands of men all over the world. Britons who are now roughing it in various parts of the empire. Americans who think of her every time they remember their own country's dryness. Uh, but the Hanky Panky's great is her biggest claim to fame. It was created to appease the thirst of a celebrated but exhausted Sir Charles Hawtrey. Coleman says the name came from Hawtrey's exclamation on taking his first sip. By Jove, that's the real hanky-panky. Hmm. You know, it turns out we were incorrect about what Fernet Branca is. Oh? I think that the name is a bit of a joke. 
Because Fernet Branca is actually tar black. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go, indeed. And uh, it turns out that the Hanky Panky is a variation on the Negroni. Uh, gin, sweet. Oh, yeah, gin and sweet vermouth with two dashes of bitters. Yeah. But it's, yeah, got the Fernet Branca instead. Hmm. And, um, yeah, so the Fernet Branca herbal liqueur mixes with the gin and the sweet vermouth and uh, apparently comes out being very well balanced. Well, there you go. There you and go. yeah, it is um, actually quite similar in appearance to Coca-Cola. If you have a look at the wow. picture here. It is too. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Now, given that it is now the 20s, we, we're, th- we're thinking maybe we should make a quick prediction of the trend that's going to happen in the next decade or so. Yes, we are going to speculate. Yeah. As to what's popular now, what was popular then, will it become popular again now, and what will be popular this decade? Maybe. Maybe. So what well what I'm seeing already is the uh I guess premiumization of drinks. So we've got craft beer, we've got craft gin, craft whiskey, uh all these sort of premium level things, premium level spirits that are basically designed to be something slight, something more experimental than your typical selection. So, yeah. So I think that, I think gin is going to be big. Gin and, um, well, craft beer is already huge, but I think it's going to be gin for the next 10 years. Well, things do tend to be quite uh, cyclical. Mm. And it does seem as though gin is making a comeback. I I know a lot of people whose drink of choice now is gin. Mm. Like a Hendrix and tonic or ink gin and tonic? Gin gin and tonic is pretty popular anyway. Yeah, yeah, the the G&T has made a definitive comeback. Mm. Um, Gin cocktails are making a comeback too. Because with all these uh, different selections of gins, you can basically pick and choose the nuances of flavor you want. Yeah, and there's a lot more bars now openly advertising cocktails. So it's not you walk up and you know the name of a cocktail and you ask for it. They're, they're telling you, order one of these cocktails. Yeah, these are our bar specials that all our bartenders know how to make. Yeah. And you should try one. And of course, there are places about now where the bartenders will get creative. And if you say, hey, make me a cocktail, they'll mix it up. Cocktails are definitely making a comeback as well because there was a time when they weren't. People drank beer or they drank wine mm. or they you know, had a Jack and Coke, which, yeah, technically that's a cocktail. But it turns out there's a specific kind of specific term for that kind of drink. It's called a highball. Mm, it is from the glass that it's served in, usually. Um, so things like gin and tonic, Jack and Coke, uh, even a dark and stormy would be, would be considered a highball. Yeah, cocktails with only two ingredients: mm, spirit and mixer. Yeah, and then your your far more complex ones, often things that involve a uh, a shaker or a muddle or 
something like that, mm. a bit more effort to produce. The ones that you pay a premium for, but with the number of specialty bars popping up that specialize in cocktails, mm. and I guess with the with the increased popularity of the old, with people getting excited about things that were. Mm. Well, I've noticed that old-fashioned, the old-fashioned is making a comeback. The Negroni, the Manhattan. These are like drinks I hadn't even heard of until I, we started the podcast. But now I'm seeing them on the chalkboard behind the bar saying, hey, we we like making this cocktail. You should buy one. Mm, well, and drinks that are classically stylish. Like, yeah. I think it's very hard to drink a Manhattan without feeling classy. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. So, I, I haven't got anything else. Was there? Uh, no, that's, uh, that's all I've got as well. So, I think we can just safely say that cocktails are going to continue their rise in popularity throughout the decade. And gin. And gin. Yes, that's, that, is our, that is our prediction. Yeah, our 2020 vision. (laughs) Yes, we see it so clearly. And we also see clearly to the next episode, which we'll tell you about after the plugs. Mm. So if you liked what you've heard, be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Podbean. Uh, We are a good drop all about alcohol. You can also find us on the socials, Facebook and Instagram as a good drop podcast. Yeah. And if you want to check out our backlog of previous episodes, jump on our website, agooddrop.com.au. And if you've got any comments, questions, feedback or suggestions for future episodes, send us an email to agooddrop at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And be sure to tune in to our next episode about Pisco. Pisco. I forget what that is now. We talked about it, but yeah, it's a... uh, It's a drink. It's a drink. It is. You'll learn what it is in the next episode. And most of you probably, after hearing the word Pisco, think sour immediately. Pisco sour. we'll get to what that is in the next episode too. Hmm. So, until then, cheers. Cheers.